so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Contact them. Con- <laughs> C-O-N-T-H. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is my faithful co-host, although I think I should describe myself as your co-host since you're president, Brent Leatherwood. This is your show. You're what makes this show go, <laughs> That is Lindsay Nicolay. That is demonstrably false. Uh, however, you might want to fire me after today because as you can tell, I'm a little stuffy and I am in this studio with you, possibly sharing germs. So you might have a cold after our recording. I apologize. That's how I feel about Tennessee fans though. Mm-hmm. You should have stayed at home. We can do this remotely. We can, but it lacks the the warmth. The camaraderie. And the, yes. And the camaraderie <laughs> when it's remote. And let's just be honest. I'm Well, I'm not totally done with remote, but you know, COVID days being remote, let's not do that 100%. Ever again. again. Yeah. Yes. Let's go ahead and start talking about what's been happening lately. And we'll start with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. And the first piece I want to share with you is by Hannah Daniel. She's in D.C., and she has written an article titled, Why We Need to Rebuild the Refugee Resettlement Program. And this is something that we talk about a lot because as believers, we should have a heart for the immigrant in uh, wanting to see them taken care of and protected and, if it's possible, welcomed into our country in a safe and effective way. And Hannah shares how Presidents usually set a refugee ceiling. And for the fiscal year of 2023, President Biden announced that we would let in a number of 125,000 refugees. But we've actually fallen far short of that for this year. And right now we're at about 25,000. Hannah points out how this decline in resettlement comes at a time of historic displacement around the world. From the article, according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, 89.3 million people, or one in every 88 people on earth, have been forcibly displaced, with 27.1 million of those meeting the formal definition of a refugee, roughly half of whom are minors. Those are just staggering numbers. And if you put yourself in someone's shoes like that, can you imagine what it would be like to be forcibly displaced from the only home you've ever known and the home where you want to remain And yet you know that you and your family will not be safe there. It's important that we call for the rebuilding of our refugee resettlement program because there are significant challenges to it, including the length of time it takes and including the fact that refugees are being resettled under 
a tool because of the inefficiency of the current system. And this tool is known as humanitarian parole. It's a substitute and it's still safe, but there are issues with it. And so the ERLC is continuing to do the work of researching this, speaking out on behalf of immigrants on the Hill, and continue to call Christians to be on the front lines of serving and welcoming these neighbors into our communities. Yeah. The reason we do that is, well, scripture guides us, but then, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention has several times talked about the need for a robust and safe immigration process. And that's clearly not what we have now, either generally in terms of our immigration system or specifically for refugee resettlement. In 2011, uh, messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting passed a resolution on immigration, and it called for, obviously, our churches to proclaim Christ and minister in his spirit to everyone, regardless of their immigration status. And it made a priority of border security and holding businesses accountable in their hiring uh, so that they would only utilize folks who have gone through legal channels to be here. It also asked for public officials, quote, to implement with the borders secured a just and compassionate path to legal status with appropriate restitutionary measures for those undocumented immigrants already living in our country. And as a subset of that, the refugee resettlement program specifically aids individuals who are fleeing for their lives or are fleeing from persecution from countries throughout the world who, who would like to come here to America and make a better life for themselves and their families. And this program, the Refugee Resettlement Program, it has just languished for years. And this should be a concern to us because the individuals who go through the Refugee Resettlement Program, they are, as as Hannah points out in her program, they go through a network of federal agencies and non-governmental organizations that work together to conduct intensive security biometric and eligibility screenings before they get here. Following these screenings, refugees then must be approved for travel, go through medical exams, and be sponsored by a domestic resettlement agency. So, I mean, you can say, I want to go to America. Even then, though, you have to go through a fairly complex process to make sure that you fit all of the criteria for actually being called a a refugee. So, That should give us all uh, confidence in that system. But then also, because of that extensive analysis that is done, we should want it to work so that we can truly be a refuge for those individuals uh, around the world who are fleeing from evil and from terror. This is a great piece, a timely piece uh, by Hannah. The end of this congressional session is, is now coming up. It's on the horizon. And a lot of folks think it may be the last time, at least in the near term, for the refugee resettlement uh, program to be, you know, fully funded and supported by Congress. What I love about these types of articles is that they help me understand something that's very complicated. So as Hannah says in her article, many of us just feel far removed from issues of immigration and refugee resettlement, and it's not a part of our normal vocabulary and yet it's something we we should and could be educated about and should and could be praying about at the very least. So I'm thankful for Hannah. I'm thankful for other staff members who write these really helpful articles and help bring clarity to something that often causes so much confusion. 
The final piece that I want to share with you today and highlight is by Matt Hensley. He's our friend and he's a pastor in Texas, and he's also the executive director of a local Baptist association. And this is titled, Why You Should Be Involved in Your Local Association. Cooperation Means We Are Better Together. So throughout October and November, state conventions of the SBC are having their annual meetings and gathering together. So we thought, well, why don't we provide some content about state associations, but then also about local associations and why they matter. And, you know, some people, well, I think many people who are Southern Baptists today, they don't understand how the Southern Baptist Convention works and how the spirit of cooperation works and why it's so important and makes us, I don't want to say unique in the sense that other denominations don't cooperate, but it is just as part of the cooperative program and how we pool our resources in order to do more effective ministry, have a farther reach. It is unique in that sense. So Matt describes local associations, and he says, in the Southern Baptist Convention, you have local churches all over the country. Most of these fully autonomous churches choose to cooperate with local associations, state conventions, and national conventions. Some may be more or less involved in any level, but in a sense, these operate in concentric circles to ultimately fulfill the Great Commission. And I love that description. So he says, think about it this way, by way of example. A local church can go door to door to evangelize. A local association can host revival services in which their churches participate. A state convention offers evangelism training or conferences. Our SBC entities offer curricula or programs to use. So it just increases the impact, although I don't like to use the word impact, but the influence of the kingdom. We're just able to work together. And there may be some people listening who are dissatisfied with their local association or don't know much about it. And Matt gives us some wisdom based on his experience on how churches can get involved with their local association, build relationships, and make a difference for the kingdom. And we really encourage this. It will take work. It will take relationship building. But again, I think the payoff by God's grace when His Spirit moves is far more than maybe the groundwork that it takes to begin getting involved with and seeing change in your local association. Baptist pop quiz, Lindsay. Oh, you know, I was not. There's a lot writing on this. Born Southern Baptist. It's one question. For all the marbles, true or false, there was a local Baptist association before there was a state Baptist convention. You're not allowed Uh, to Google the answer. um, Well, I'm going to say that's probably true. True. Yes, you win. Congratulations. I didn't know it for sure. You get to host the podcast for another week. Which one was the local? What was it? So the local association was started in South Carolina, in Charleston, because churches in the low country around the city of Charleston wanted to cooperatively work together to advance the gospel. Those same churches would go on a few years later to uh, help begin the South Carolina Baptist State Convention. Hmm. So there you go. There's a little Baptist trivia trivia. for you. So, no, the SBC has a long uh, history um, and great history with uh, local associations. And And you're right, maybe in some contexts, they have not worked maybe quite as well, or some churches have have said, oh, you know, we don't need them. But I think what Matt is explaining is in this is how local associations can be so beneficial and they can really help support 
the mission of our churches who want to serve in a bigger way in their in their local communities and do so alongside other Baptist churches. So I think I would submit Matt and his example and his leadership of the Colin Baptist Association as one of our really healthy associations. And the great news is we have a lot of them out there that are providing resources and providing leadership and opportunities for cooperation for so many of our SBC churches. Yes. So as a takeaway, we would encourage you, if you are not familiar with or connected with your local association, or even if you have some differences, uh, begin to contact them and see how you can get involved and how you can partner together to make a difference for the kingdom in your community. Brent, I know you're going to go check out the other articles that we're featuring this week, but for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. And now for our culture section. Brent, why don't you let us know what's happening this week? There you go. Well, the main thing that everyone has been talking about over the last several days is our partners across the pond have a brand new prime minister. They're third in seven weeks. Crazy. <laughs> so just about 50 days ago, Boris Johnson uh, resigned and left as prime minister of the United Kingdom. He was replaced by Liz Truss. That didn't last very long. And late last week, she resigned and promised that by the end of this week, we're recording, there would be a new prime minister. Well, not a whole lot of viable candidates emerged. At one point, it was talked about seriously that the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson would be back as Prime Minister, uh, but he failed to secure enough votes for there to be a party election. And so it went to one person, Rishi Sunak. He garnered the most support from the members of parliament. And because he was the only candidate to emerge, an election by the party members of the Conservative Party was not needed. And so he was named Prime Minister earlier this week. Our system looks like a paragon of stability compared to what mm -hmm. uh, we have seen take place over in London uh, over the last few weeks. So you may be wondering, okay, well, tell me more about this Rishi Sunak fellow who has become the new prime minister. Well, the BBC has a quick little read that we will link to, and it just gives some fun facts about him and some interesting facts about him. He is the former chancellor and is now the UK's new prime minister. He lost to Liz Truss in September, so he was one of the candidates vying to replace Boris Johnson, but she resigned six weeks later. In the latest leadership contest, Mr. Sunak racked up the support of his fellow MPs early and fast. He crossed the 100 nominations he needed long before the deadline, including from members of parliament that had previously backed Truss or Boris Johnson. He predicted financial problems under Truss. He clashed with the former prime minister during the previous leadership race, claiming her plan to borrow money during an inflation crisis was a fairy tale that would plunge the economy into chaos. And we'll come back to that with the second story in just a moment. He is the son of immigrants. His parents came to the United Kingdom from East Africa and are both of Indian origin. Mr. Sunak was born in Southampton in 1980, where his father was a general practitioner and his mother ran a pharmacy. He has only been a member of parliament for seven years. He was first elected to parliament in 2015. So he has had a meteoric rise to be prime minister, and he certainly 
is going to have his hands full because the next story that we're just going to talk about comes to us from the Associated Press, and he faces major economic hurdles as he takes office. Quote, the challenges facing the UK's third prime minister this year are enormous. He must try to shore up an economy sliding toward recession and reeling after his predecessor's brief disastrous experiment in libertarian economics while also attempting to unite a demoralized and divided party that trails far behind the opposition in opinion polls. In his first public statement, Sunak said, quote, the United Kingdom is a great country, but there is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. The story then goes on to say he now faces the huge challenge of calming markets and trying to tame inflation at a time of weakened government finances, a worsening economic outlook, and a wave of strikes. Treasury Chief Jeremy Hunt, appointed by Trust 10 days ago, is due to make an emergency budget statement on October 31st, if Sunak keeps him on the job. So needless to say, not only is he coming in in the midst of this economic turmoil, he's also still trying to build out his cabinet and his team. That's a lot to deal with, to say the least. Makes you grateful for uh, the team you have here at the ERLC, huh? The beginning of your presidency. Wow. Not as much turmoil. (laughs) Just kidding. I I am grateful for my (laughs) colleagues. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Slightly different type of uh, craziness Mm -hmm. that, that he is dealing with. Because here in America, our economic woes and the you know, unevenness of of our economy and the stresses that the people are feeling have been well documented. In the United Kingdom, they're facing even steeper hurdles and challenges. Why can the prime ministers be turned over so quickly in the UK? Mm. So in their system, uh, once you lose the confidence of a critical mass of fellow members of parliament, you basically, it is your time to go. They also still have, in in many respects in their politics, the capacity for shame that we seem to have lost here. And so uh, over there, if you do lose the backing of your party, you generally will succumb to those pressures. That's what happened with Boris Johnson. That's what happened with Liz Truss. There's a influential committee over there that basically signals if you've lost uh, the majority of the members of parliament or of their party, I should say. Yeah. Fascinating. Clear as mud, I tell you. It is just an interesting time over there in the UK. Yeah. And so they have a general election uh, every five years. There are calls to have what's known as a snap election, where an unscheduled election could occur, an unscheduled general election. You don't have to, but obviously, if at some point the public pressure becomes too much to bear, that could happen. I I doubt that conservatives will do that, especially now that they have settled on someone like Sunak, who is seen as a unifier and a a more moderate figure. So I I think they're going to try to resist that and get to the next uh, general election, which I think is 2024. But needless to say, this is an important moment. He's a son of immigrants. He is the first person of color to hold the title of Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So that's certainly a historical moment. The next story that we're going to talk about also is international in nature, although it is uh, far more serious. And it has to do with warnings that are coming out of Russia. Some of our listeners may have noticed in the news that a flurry of phone calls happened in diplomatic channels from Russia to major Western countries. And they were warning about the 
possible use of a radioactive dirty bomb. Now, they were saying that uh, we should all be on the lookout for the Ukrainian forces to utilize this, which no one really treats that seriously. But there are a number of analysts that are concerned that this is actually a pretext for Russia to use one against Ukrainian forces. So the New York Times is picking up on this because earlier this week, Russian President Vladimir Putin signaled once again the same concerns. The New York Times says this, President Vladimir V. Putin on Wednesday repeated Russia's unsubstantiated warning that Ukraine was preparing to explode a so-called dirty bomb as concerns rose in the West that the Kremlin was seeking a pretext to escalate its war in Ukraine. Mr. Putin joined the chorus of senior Russian officials who have claimed in recent days, without providing evidence, that Ukraine planned to detonate a dirty bomb, which uses conventional explosives to spread radioactive material. It was the first time the Russian leader made the claim, which Western officials have dismissed, suggesting Moscow could use it as a pretext for launching its own attack. At the same time, the Russian military conducted an annual exercise involving land, sea, and airfield tests of its missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads. Mr. Putin's claim, coupled with military exercises, added to the concerns of a possible escalation of the war in Ukraine a day after President Biden warned Mr. Putin that it would be, quote, an incredibly serious mistake to use a tactical nuclear weapon in the conflict. A dirty bomb is not a nuclear device, but Mr. Biden's warning reflected the increasingly urgent concern in Washington and amongst our Western allies. So, as the story said, this isn't, don't think in your mind the use of a dirty bomb. Don't think of something like the atomic weapons the American forces used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It, it's smaller in scale, but it still can have devastating effects on the populace where it is uh, detonated. And so it would be the, the first time uh, that it has been used in, in the theater of war since World War II. And so this is not a, a line that any of us should want crossed. And the reality is, this is an intimidation tactic by Putin and by Russia towards America and our Western allies. And that aspect of this was, I think, helpfully discussed by our friend, David French, who writes over at Dispatch Media about the, quote, diabolical logic of nuclear blackmail. David writes this, to understand Putin's thinking, it's necessary to dive deeper in the current military reality of the Ukraine war. In a nutshell, Ukraine is winning on the battlefield. There are no foreseeable short or medium term prospects for Russia substantially reversing that momentum. Russia has taken staggering losses in men and material. It's reportedly running short on precision munitions. Its best units have taken catastrophic casualties. And it is unlikely that plugging even large numbers of untrained or poorly trained conscripts into a modern battlefield can substantially reverse Ukraine's momentum. At the same time, however, it's important to remember that Ukrainian success depends on two key factors, Ukrainian valor and Western, which is mainly American, arms supplies. Thus, if Putin can't break Ukrainian will, he can still prevail if he can choke off Ukrainian supplies, and that truly means choking off American supplies. We're the only Western power with the combination of weapon stocks and production capacity sufficient to keep Ukraine in the fight indefinitely. 
David goes on to say this, yet Russia can change the calculus if it can intimidate American politicians into believing that American aid risks an unacceptable escalation. Nuclear threats aren't yet intimidating Ukrainians. Will they intimidate Americans? He goes on in the piece to talk about the instance this week of a group, a progressive caucus in Congress that sent a letter to the Biden administration asking them to make diplomatic efforts with the Russian administration. And it backfired immensely. But it showed this sort of, or it sent the signal that maybe we're going to flinch in our aid and help uh, to Ukraine in its fight against Russia. And he goes on to say, we can't be intimidated uh, because of this. And we have to see this threat by Putin for what it is. It's a delicate situation over there right now. Uh, We have talked about all that is going on in Ukraine multiple times here on the podcast and the way that it's affecting Baptist brothers and sisters in that country. But I think we need to steal ourselves for the fact that this is likely to go on for a while and Putin is going to test every possible weakness that he can try to exploit. It has to be a terrifying time to be in Ukraine right now and also to be in Russia if you're against the conflict. I just cannot imagine living that reality. And now with this threat of this dirty bomb, certainly we don't want to, which I know I can, give in to compassion fatigue. And which, I mean, we're so far removed, but where we're just tired of hearing about bad news. And so we just forget about it. But we want to continually remind one another to pray for Ukraine, to pray for Russia, to pray for an end to this conflict and to pray that our brothers and sisters over there would show their good works and let their light shine before men as they're living in the midst of really what has just got to be like a hell on earth, truly. No, you're right, Lindsay. With this kind of news, gosh, you're just flooded with all sorts of emotions, particularly terror if, you know, you have family members who are there. You know, for me, obviously, I don't know if they would use somewhat of my age in the in the Ukrainian military forces, but if they were, I obviously would would want to defend my homeland. At the same time, I would want to get my wife and children out of there, especially given this seeming warning that Russia could, or at least envisions the possibility of utilizing a dirty bomb. They have been through so much over there already, and I. I think that's the thing you you talked about compassion fatigue. There's also just like we need to keep straight here whose fault this is. This is an illegal invasion by Vladimir Putin. It is an immoral invasion of Ukraine. It it is a violation of Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. And look, there may be people in eastern parts of Ukraine who speak the Russian language and and may have some sympathies towards Russia. That in no way in international law allows for one country to invade another. That is ruthless. Uh, and so we should continue to pray uh, for families, uh, for, for fellow Christian brothers and sisters over in Ukraine, for everyone in that country who is being subjected to this terror. And we should pray for a change of heart for Vladimir Putin that he would see the error of his ways, that he would recall his forces and return these stolen lands back to Ukraine. 
And we should pray for our own leaders here in America and our wider uh, Western allies to continue to see this through and support uh, Ukraine, whether it is with, you know, physical aid, military aid, or just being places of refuge where these people fleeing uh, from the terror that they are facing, the existential terror and existential threats they are facing, and give them a place to seek and, and find refuge. So this is certainly something we're going to keep watching, keep monitoring, and hopefully we don't end up in a place where some sort of radioactive bomb has been detonated that I don't think anybody should want us to go down that path. No, absolutely not. So before we close out, I wanted to share something else. Usually I share an item that is of less importance and that interests me. And this was shared today by one of our friends on Slack. And this comes from AP. Prince Harry's memoir, if you didn't know he's writing a memoir, titled Spare to come out on January 10th. Now that is quite the title for a memoir. And Brent, do you know why it's called Spare? You were a little confused at first. He's a fan of bowling? No, what's oh, okay. that? That Go is ahead. such a dad joke. Okay. Oh, my word. Bum, bum, bum. No, because their royals produce an heir and a spare, and Harry is the spare, which is terrible. That's just a terrible, sad, in a sad way, title. And I'm sure this is not going to help royal relations and all the turmoil that has been happening lately between reportedly between Harry and his family and his brother and dad. So this is what AP's little paragraph that shares about it says, Prince Harry's memoir, an object of obsessive anticipation worldwide, is coming out January 10th. The book will be called Spare, is being billed by Penguin Random House as an account told with raw, unflinching honesty and filled with insight, revelation, self-examination, and hard-won wisdom about the eternal power of love over grief. So I, for one, am very intrigued and probably will read it. Do you know how old Prince Harry is? Yes. He's a little younger than us. He's what, 36? 38. 38. Okay. Generally. Already writing a memoir. Yeah. But he's a royal. Yeah. No, he's lived, uh, I mean. A lot of life. Well, there's just, he's had a lot of unique experiences and I'm sure that they are newsworthy. Well, they are newsworthy. I just kind of have a, natural reflex against reading memoirs of young people. Yeah. Well, not me. I have a, when it comes to royal I know, things, but you, you, yeah, I was going to say, you put this in the category of, of just royal family drama that you love. And, and that's true. But this, because if, if it was a book about the royal family, the history of the royal family, I, I would be more accepting of that. The fact that it's specifically a memoir about someone who's 38, I don't know, live a little bit longer to have more memories to share. Mm -hmm. I guess that that would be my only. And more experience. Well, I'm looking forward to it, though I'm just, the title's just heart-wrenching. And I look forward to when you will work on your memoir, Mr. Leatherwood. What do you think the title would be? Many years from now, Chief of Sinners. Chief of Sinners. Yes. Well, let me tell you this quick joke about our one of our you, um, staff. You didn't members. even like. You didn't. You didn't like call me. <laughs> well, you didn't you interact that, with that. You borrowed that from Paul. Exactly. You just took it. Yeah. That well, was already his. Memoir. I mean, I probably would give him. Chief of you know, Sinners. I, I probably would would like reference that. You know, somewhere in there. So that reminded me titles of your memoir of an article that I was editing for one of our coworkers, Jason Thacker. And it was explaining something complicated and difficult. 
And I responded back and I said, woo, this is dense, but it's good. And he texted me later on and said, thanks for reviewing my article. I'm going to have dense comma, but good added to my tombstone. And I just cackled over that. It still makes me laugh. Yeah, that is good. Dense, but good. That's going to be the title of your memoir. Oh, okay. You know what yours would be? (laughs) I'm nervous. Make sure it's a joke that you people yep. aren't going to be no, mad here it is. at you. Yeah, no, the the goulash is always ready at the Nicolay House. That's, <laughs> oh, that's that, terrible. Oh, is that is that bad? That's terrible. The goulash is always hot. Okay, well, let's just end this while we can. And I say that only because we talked about goulash last extensively week. last week for some reason. And Not beefaroni, it's goulash. Well, that's a terrible name for that. Feels. Oh. Just like it's got some. Which is why the title of your memoir is going to be Dense, comma, but good. <laughs> Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.